Hebrews 12, and we did, I think, verse 26 last week. Hebrews 12:26. Now we are on Hebrews 12:27. Now we've had an extended discussion about the um, this Sinai Mount Zion analogy that's been going on for half of Hebrews 12, and we've been doing just one verse a week, so it's taking us a while to get through it. But the analogy was basically that in their memory from their scriptures, God shook the earth at Sinai. And there was an awesome theophany. A theophany is when God appears in some manifest form so people can see. And there was fire and smoke and the earth shaking and the people couldn't touch the mountain unless they die. So that was what they would know from their old covenant experience. Now the author of Hebrews says, what we've come to is more awesome than that and it's more important that we pay, take heed. Amen. Okay? And then we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, the, um, uh, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what we've come to is something far greater than what they did. And imagine how hard it would be for them to think that way because it seems to us that if God shakes the earth, that would be a more powerful manifestation of His presence than if we can't see Him at all. Do you see what I mean? And that's, that's why this seen-unseen thing goes on all the way through Hebrews, and it's a necessary idea to uh, pay attention to because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that faith is the evidence of things not seen. So people that go uh, to these different meetings looking for a new theophany are really don't realize that what they're doing is, is they're, they're living in unbelief. Because they're thinking that if I go to the Laughing Revival and I see something happen, that would make God more real. Or if I go to the Benny Hinn meeting, that would make God more real. Or if I went to Pensacola, I had somebody actually tell me that. I said, why would you go to Pensacola to meet God? Isn't God everywhere? And, and what the answer was, there's a theophany in Pensacola. In other words, there's a visible manifestation of God's presence in Pensacola that there isn't in Minneapolis. So you have to go there to see it. Well, look at Lourdes and the other stuff in the Catholic. Oh, yeah. We had that video of millions of people. The apparitions of Mary. Right. Um, that Jim Tetlow has a book about that, and Jan's had him on her show several times. And there are millions of people come because they get to see something visible. Now, here's something to, to seriously ponder. The book of Hebrews says that that which is unseen, that isn't manifest here on earth, anywhere, that's in heaven, is greater, more awesome, more profound, and more threatening if we don't come on the right terms. Amen. Okay? And so, uh, if I'm saying I need something more than the gospel... And I need something more than Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And I need something more than the bloodshed once for all. And I need something more than the tabernacle that was pitched in heaven uh, by man and, and by God and not man. And I need something more than the words that he spoke in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. As soon as I have this lust for more, I'm already in very great spiritual peril. And a lot of people are in that condition, obviously, or mysticism wouldn't be so popular today. And it's that something more that people feel like they need that is uh, the hook that Satan uses to, to, to hook them and drag them away from the Lord. All right? So, verse 27. Let me just read the last three verses of Hebrews 12. I tell you that we were going to finish this today, but I don't want to be proven a liar. <laughs> so, <laughs> I probably would be. Yeah, Brian here said that he heard a guy say that they taught through Hebrews. It took a whole year to teach through Hebrews in their church. And Brian says, little do they know. <laughs> okay, this expression, yet once more, verse 27, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom, which literally in the Greek, we are, are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. 
And so God being a consuming fire that they saw literally, it, I had some cross-references where the, God's consuming fire in the Old Testament literally burned people up. Okay, so they, you know, when he told the Hebrews, God's a consuming fire, they go, yeah, we know. He, he burned up some of us more than once. Uh, they could take that to heart, but it's hard to imagine if, unless you believe the scriptures because God as a consuming fire now is not here on the earth. He's not on Sinai. He's in heaven, but he nevertheless is the consuming fire. And, if we come to him on his terms through Messiah, we shall see him one day. If we don't come through Messiah, we'll also see him, but it'll be very, very bad. But it's, it'll be too late. Okay, so that's the warning here. So we have some analogies here. Verse 26 has an analogy between heaven and earth. Verse 27 has an analogy between the shakable and the unshakable. Now, in the Old Testament, when God came, the earth shook. So that's where this term shaking came from, the Old Testament idea. But what is being said here is that um, God has something that is unshakable, which is his kingdom and what he's given to us. And if we cling to the Lord by faith and trust the Lord and come to him on his terms, we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. And God will make our faith strong so that it's unshakable because it's grounded in Christ. And we shall be able to survive whatever may come that would be in a spiritual attack against our faith. Yes? It says we serve God acceptably reverence and godly fear. Well, God told a story about the servant. The servant comes in from the field. And he thinks the master's going to serve him. And God says it doesn't work that way. You prepare my meal. And then when you get done serving me, preparing my meal, say, I'm an unworthy servant because, and walk humbly before your God, because I am only doing my duty. So, you know what? Bathsheba said Solomon's servant were so blessed just to serve food, to be in Solomon's temple, to be near him. How much more have we got to serve the living God? It's only our duty. That's why I get a kick out of these preachers pontificating. They should do their duty and, and, and say they're unworthy and only doing their duty and give the gospel. That's what we get here. And give, God, and give, <laughs> and give God the glory, right? God the glory. Okay. <laughs> well, Brian and I were doing that, talking about that yesterday. Uh, Actually, you don't know that. It's still on the computer. But we're, we're uh, recording a series of radio shows, uh, Brian Flynn and I. And yesterday we were talking about this oath, thinking about what you're talking about, Dan. And we were reading this oath that these people took uh, a year ago at the launch of this peace plan. And the thing that's interesting was what they were saying. I will, I will do this, I will do that, I will never do this, I will always do that, I will never be discouraged, I will never be, you know, on and on and on and on. And you read the thing and you think, it would be impossible for anybody to have a, that had a circumspect understanding of how sinful we are and how gracious God is and, and how badly we need Him to ever make those kind of claims. One of them that we discussed on the radio was the one where he says, I will, I will never be frustrated by problems. <laughs> okay, that was a covenant. And so, so what we, what we said was, um, whoever made that oath is going to be a covenant breaker before the day's over, probably. <laughs> and then, and then Brian, and Brian, you brought up about the promise keepers and pointed out it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, it's impossible, it is admirable for any man to make a promise to be a better husband and to be a better man. But to be able to keep that every single day for the rest of your life is just impossible. You can't do it. It's not that you're hard that you don't want to, but to be able to keep that, I think is... Well, the, the, and it actually gets harder by the approach of teaching human ability and then taking O's based on your presumed ability. Because grace doesn't come because you believe you have power and ability. Grace comes because you believe you don't have 
And so when you say, God, give me grace to be a better husband, you're more likely to become a better husband than if you say, I will be a good husband because I decided to. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Keith. (laughs) That that unbroken success is a curse. I wouldn't know. I've never had it. (laughs) But go on. Yes. If by some force of will you took an oath... At the end of your life, if I did this, and I've kept that oath, and I'm a great guy now because I kept my oath, in essence, the fact that God gives you success in keeping your oath reinforces this bad idea and could reinforce you right into hell. It's God's grace that he gives us the law. He lets us fail some days. knows in it. Yeah. Say, see? And You're then he knows in it again, and you finally understand. I'm a sinner, yeah. <laughs> okay, Bert. Well, the way you... Uh, I found out the way to not uh, break so many promises is you don't make so many promises. <laughs> <laughs> so the best way to be a promise keeper is don't make all these promises, right? <laughs> thanks for th- yeah, th- thanks for sharing that wisdom, Bert. You've had a lot of years to work on that. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it, it's a lesson to learn, and and Luther wrote a, a long treatise against religious souls that I read for part of the research for my book. And Luther has some very brilliant things to say about it. And he said that these religious oaths are an attack against the gospel. And one of the things that it says, this is this this shows what the Bible thinks about man. What it says in James, swear not at all, and it and it said, lest you fall under judgment. Now why would make taking an oath put you under judgment? Because you're going to fail. Right? And then you fail, you're going to be under judgment. Because now you're a covenant breaker. So, obviously, James doesn't have such a high view of human ability. Yes, Kathy? Free of that, and they live under grace. You live under grace. Yes, that's true. And, like, the, you know, our songs should reflect that. And you can see the, what sort of theology people have by the songs that they sing in their Christian services. And there's a whole genre of popular Christian music today that, um, what did uh, Jim Bukowski call it? Bow songs. In other words, singing about our own, what we're going to do. Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to do this. You sing about what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Whereas if you have a different theology, what you sing about is what God promised he would do to us, for us needy peoples. Standing on the promises of God, not standing on the promises of Bob. Very good illustration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you got that straight. <laughs> All right. I was going to read a comment on this passage from William Lane's commentary. Um, Dick said that he bought William Lane's commentary to read this summer. What's your thought on it so far? It's awesome. Even the, about two, 150 pages of how he got to even do the work is phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just amazing. What, that There are a few people, I'm thankful for them, that have spent 30, 40 years learning not only the Greek, but the Septuagint, what it, the Greek, the intertestamental Jewish literature, the New Testament, and anything that had anything to do with it, and then they can go through and pull all this stuff together. It's a great tool. Well, here's what he says uh, about verse 27 here. A theological reason for the writer's preference for Salinane may be found in the Septuagint, which was so frequently the source of his significant vocabulary. The translators of the Septuagint uses the verb Salayuane, metaphorically as an expression for the effect of divine judgment. That's the word for shake. Those who experience God's judgment are shaken. And then he gives a bunch of verses. 2 Kings 17.20, Psalm 30, which would be the Masoretic text, Psalm 31.22. Um, Psalm, uh, again, the Mas- see the, the, when you do the Septuagint, they have a different numbering system for the Psalms, so it gets confusing. Um, and so he lists some other psalms and lamentations where the term shake that was used right here was used in, in the Septuagint for God's judgment. All right, so God comes in judgment and there is shaking. 
Um, the translators use uh, this word for shake with the negative, especially in the Psalms, as a fixed idiom for unshakable dust. The idiom is applied to the righteous as those who share the unshakable character of God. They enjoy confidence that they will not be shaken. Then he gives a whole list of verses where it's like that. Familiarity with the figurative use of the word to shake in passages referring to eschatological judgment in the Psalms accounts sufficiently for the writer's preference for this term. So the, so the shaking here, being how these people would know these verses, would say that there's, there's two possibilities. You can be not right with God, which makes you subject to being shakable. And when God comes in His judgment, shaking is all, and fear is all you're going to experience. But if you are right with God, by grace, God will make the righteous unshakable. And that we'll be able to stand on that day when He comes because of what He's done for us. And so it's unshakable. So the, the, the passage in Hebrews 12.27 is telling us we need to be one way, we're going to be one way or the other. We're either going to be shakable, which is everything that's not right with God at His judgment, or we're going to be unshakable because we are right with God and we're receiving an unshakable kingdom. Amen. And so this is coming out of the Psalms and, and the Old Testament. Yes, uh, Sam? This, this scripture is, sounds like that's a, a more specific way of telling us who that if you're not saved, it, it, it reminds me back of the parable of the, of the sower, the seeds, that the seeds that are rooted in, in the word, the seeds that are rooted in Yeah, it takes up fruit and grows and, grows yeah. And then all the other seeds, they're going to be shaken, and those are going to be shaken away, lest you root it in the word. Yeah, exactly. So there's a whole lot of passages in the Bible that tell us, use different metaphors for what it's like to be right with God. And unshakable is one of those metaphors of what it's like to be right with God. I'm looking forward to that. Then the end of the thing, I got as a consuming fire. You can think of the guys burnable and unburnable. Guys in the in the fiery furnace, where they were obedient to God, and Jesus came there. One like the Son of Man came there with them, and even though God is a consuming fire, they weren't consumed. They're not consumed because the Son of Man was there with them. God, great analogy. Really good. Okay, um, Dean, Psalm 102, 26 and 27, Brian, Matthew 24, 35, and Denise, 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. So you have the analogy of the earthquake, the shaking, and we have the analogy of the fire, the burning. And both of them came from Sinai where they had shaking and burning. And so they knew that's what God's like. He's a consuming fire and he shakes everything. And they didn't dare go touch Sinai or they're going to be consumed. And so the Hebrews are thinking they're going to go back to that. And the author of Hebrews says, if you do, you're in big trouble. Yeah, this is going to be even more awesome. Okay, Psalm 102, 26 and 27. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment as a vesture. Shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and thy years shall have no end. Okay, so there's the, what can be changed and what's not changeable. God's not changeable. Matthew 24, 35. Uh, sky and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Okay, the, earth, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my words will not. That's an allusion to a passage in Isaiah, I believe, where it says that God's word will not pass away. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That says it all, doesn't it? Very, very clearly. These Being how this is going to happen, what sort of people ought we to be? So we better be right with God because the shaking and the burning is literally going to happen. Um, what a tragedy that people don't even know about these things now, nowadays because they're not hearing it. I can't think of anything more important to know about. I've got a couple more citations here. Um, 
there's pages just on this, every verse. There's pages in here. It's amazing. It's a big two-volume set. It costs like 45 bucks. The result of the shaking promise of verse 26b, uh, so that that which not, cannot be shaken may remain, this clause indicates that the judgment that the writer found promised in Haggai 2.6 will have a discriminating function. It will remove all that can be shaken and allow others to endure which cannot be shaken. The interpretation was fostered by the text of Haggai. The promise of a shaking of heaven and earth is repeated in Haggai 2.21. The result will be the removal of thrones, kings, powerful armies, and the establishment of God's chosen servant, Haggai 2.22-23. And he goes on. Um, the juxtaposition of the theologically significant verb uh, to remain with the fixed idiom from the Septuagint to describe the stability and security of those who cannot be shaken includes those faithful members of the community who will not be removed when God's threatening intervention occurs. However, all opposition to God's sovereign rule will be shaken and removed. That event will result in a decisive removal from the community of those who have disregarded God's speaking and rejected the solemn warning. They will experience not only the loss of birthrights, verses 16 to 17, and the blessings of the new covenant uh, reviewed in the vision of 22 to 24, but also the invoking of the curse sanctions of the covenant, verse 25. Among that which remains are all those who share in the unshakableness of the judge, who is God of all, verse 23. Their fidelity to the new covenant is the ground of the assurance they will enjoy eternal salvation, receiving as their legacy an unshakable kingdom. So that's a summary of what we're learning in chapter 12. Receiving an unshakable kingdom is the legacy of the people who are faithful to the covenant. And what that means is that they embrace the gospel. They come to God on his terms. Their sins are washed away by the blood. And they're staying with the terms of the covenant and not selling out their birthright, as we talked about. This might be a play on words, but could we use this analogy for one shall be shaken, taken, and the other left behind? Is there a tie in there? I don't know if there's a grammatical tie, but conceptually, we have the idea in Matthew that that there's a total different situation for those who are right with God and those who are not. And at the point of this eschatological um, shaking, they're going to be in totally different condition. All right? And um, this kingdom that's coming is going to be a threat. See, that's another insight that Lane had that I thought just really helped me understand the Bible. Uh, in, our, in his commentary on Mark, he was talking about um, verses Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Now, why would the kingdom being at hand be a motivation to repent? Well, because the kingdom is a threat to sinners, just like we're reading here. That when the kingdom comes, um, everybody not right with God is going to be destroyed because they they have enemy status. All right? When the king comes, he's going to destroy his enemies, and you better not be one of them. Okay? So this idea of the kingdom being at hand is like this big sword hanging over history. All right? And it's about to drop at any time and you don't know when, so you better repent because of, because otherwise you're going to be one of those enemies. And see, the people in Israel couldn't accept that because they thought they were right with God when they really weren't. They thought they had the kingdom, but they rejected the king. And so they couldn't conceive of the fact that they'd be the ones who ended up being God's enemies because they thought that was the pagan Romans. Yes? And even, I was thinking about the fire, the God is a consuming fire you have in Luke where Jesus comes to Samaria and they don't receive him because he's on his way to Jerusalem and James and John said he called down fire from heaven. Because it would work. I mean, it would have, the enemies of God, they would have been burned up, but Jesus knows that he wants to preach the gospel to them. So he says, don't. No, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to preach the gospel right now and offer salvation so they'll escape this coming fire. Absolutely. It's, a lot of the things that you see are interactions in the gospel is based on a confusion between the two advents. See, because the, the Jewish expectation was not for two advents. And I'm going to preach about that this morning in Luke 1 from this Benedictus of Zechariah's spirit-inspired words are talking about salvation from enemies. 
But that doesn't happen until the end. All right? And, but it, right within the same Spirit-inspired speech, he talks about forgiveness of sins. So you have these two themes that are both found in the Old Testament and both true. That when Messiah comes, he's going to bring forgiveness of sins. And when Messiah comes, he's going to bring victory over the enemies of Israel. And somehow the victory over the enemies seemed to make sense to the Jewish people on the scene of history when Jesus was here. Because that was what they really wanted. That sounded like really good news. But this need for forgiveness, they weren't so sure they even needed it. Especially the Pharisees and Sadducees and the self-righteous. Well, uh, Remember the prayer the guy prayed to himself? I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other people. <laughs> it is funny, it says he prayed to himself. And then, uh, and the other guy was saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, would not even lift his head up to heaven. But so, so they were stumbling over this idea that Jesus is saying that we're the sinners? Uh, yes. But Messiah is going to sit on the throne of David and destroy the enemies. Yes. But until you repent, you still have enemy status. Okay? And, and, they, and they just didn't get that. And so it takes the grace of God to open our eyes to be able to see that. And, and God will do that. Yes. What's your name, by the way? I'm Carl. Hi, Carl. Um, it just kind of harkens to me something where um, I was thinking about where everybody is, is sleeping. And there's a passage that says, wake up, O sleeper. When you're woken up, you're shaken. You know? mm-hmm. God shakes us and wakes us up so that we can see our need for the gospel and receive that which is unshakable so that we're awake. Yeah, that's another analogy, being awake and asleep. Remember the, the virgins? In the, in the lamps? That's another analogy. You could be asleep. Say, well, things are going to go on. Uh, remember the, you read the passage in Peter at the beginning that they said, where's the promise of his coming? Things have remained, remained the same. So we began falling asleep thinking, well, he's never going to come back. This is never going to really happen. And it will happen. Yes, uh, Larry, did you have something? You mentioned something about that they didn't expect that because they didn't expect it to happen. Because maybe the prophets didn't see the church age. Well, the, the the prophets had it in there, but it takes the the vague sin was not listening to Messiah when he explained it, because if you read the prophets, it says that God's going to save Gentiles, all right, and all the way back into Genesis, through through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and there are many passages about the islands, you know, the isle that to them that was the different people scattered around the Mediterranean, the islands will come. The nations will come. The, the psalm where, where it's promised to Messiah that I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. So all of that was there, but it wasn't in there. They didn't have it processed very well. And then all of the material was there about the forgiveness of sins, the suffering, the servant, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 51, Psalm 22. It's all there, but they didn't really have that incorporated. And... Then there's the stuff about God's going to come and destroy the enemies of Israel. All right, that's all there too. So, but it's all in prophecy is always mixed together, for the most part. It's pretty rare that you have an extended section of prophecy where everything is just chronological. Uh, and I, you can see that in, in a lot of different types of prophecy. It's all together, but it's like it's compacted into one thing. And you'll have, within one passage, they'll be here. First Advent and Second Advent. Let me illustrate this. This is a good chance to learn. Uh, I'm going <laughs> I'm to I'm wrap up and fall down on my face. And... Did you do that? Let's look at, turn with me to Luke 4. Let me just show you how this works. Glad I asked. <laughs> Glad you asked. Luke 4. This is Jesus in his hometown. And I just want to show you how this, he pulled out parts of a prophecy to quote, but not the whole thing. And then we'll go back to the Old Testament and see how it's all mixed together in the Old Testament. Alright? Luke 4 and verse 18. This is Jesus in his hometown. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives to recover his sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which was, by the way, the year of Jubilee. And then he closed the book, verse 20, 
And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah 61. Today, this has been fulfilled. So, these things are part of the first advent. Recovery of sight to blind, release of captives, the gospels preached to the poor, favorable year of the Lord, so on. Okay? Now, turn, that, that was a citation. By the way, you know what happened after he did this? They took him to throw him off of a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The what? Oh, yeah, the seat of Moses. Yeah, the teacher would sit in the seat of Moses, but Moses was that. I've read several different things about the seat, okay? Sometimes they said they left the seat empty, and it said Moses, this is Moses' seat, nobody else sits in it. But I've also read that the teacher would sit in the seat of Moses, signifying not that this person was Moses, but that the true, uh, uh, they were disciples of Moses, so the person who gave the law was Moses, so whoever was sitting in that seat would be the one who was interpreting Moses. And that was their sacred duty. Now, in Matthew 23, Jesus said they seated themselves in the seat of Moses, therefore do what they say, but not what they do. So inasmuch as they are being faithful in the seat of Moses and teaching Moses, then he's authoritative, Moses is authoritative. But inasmuch as they're not living what Moses taught, don't follow their example, because they're sinners. Just like Paul saying, I'm glad that they preach the gospel, even if they do it with coming motives. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that, that okay, that was the seat of Moses. But back to the passage. Now you saw what he quoted here. Now let's go back to the verse that he quoted, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and then I'll show you how prophecy works in Old and New Covenant. Right, and then I'll explain why they didn't see this, but then why there's still guilt in spite of that. All right. Uh, Isaiah 61 says this, what Jesus quoted, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, now we know that's Messiah, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then look at the next phrase, And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't quote that. He left it out. Why? Because that doesn't happen till the second advent. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And if he would have quoted that part, that would have been wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, if it would have been the day of vengeance, it would have been really bad. <laughs> okay. Yes. What I find um, interesting is that in the Old Testament, they picked out what they wanted. The vengeance. They wanted the victory then. And they missed Jesus. Today, most of the church picks out the love of God. And leaves out the vengeance, the vengeance or the consuming fire. So the church is missing God today. That's a good point. If you didn't hear what Denise said, that today the church is doing the same thing. We're just picking out what we like. We pick out the love and leave the vengeance out. We, you know, the warm fuzzies and get rid of the blood atonement and stuff like that. And so it's always a danger to leave something out, isn't it? Amen. All right. You got to got to take the whole counsel of God. Now let's talk about if you were a Jew. In the first century, and you had your Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, you wouldn't see all this, alright? You know they were there, but it would be very, very hard to understand. Because it's all mixed up in there. But the guilt was this. Jesus came on the scene of history, demonstrated he was the one, and he explained it to them. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the prophet that God said he would raise up after Moses, and when he came, listened to him, and he went on the Mount of Transfiguration, and God said, this is my son, listen to him. They won't listen to him. Now, if they would have listened to Jesus, he would have straightened this out for them. But they didn't want to listen. Yes. I think if they would have had the proper eschatology before Jesus came, an eschatological understanding of the first advent and the last advent and how that works towards the ultimate culmination of the millennium, they would have seen things different. And I think that even in our day, a proper eschatology, in terms of just a broader understanding of what's happening at the different advents and what's going to happen when and why, colors and affects your interpretation of the whole Bible because it's on those events of Christ's incarnation that the whole Bible hinges. I agree. That's why I think eschatology is important. 
And I also see that's why some people get into error because they may have everything else right, but they got their eschatology wrong. They may get the gospel right, thank God for that, but there's still a there's problem. There's still a problem. For example, if you're a preterist, you got problems because you think all this already happened. It hasn't happened. If you're an amillennialist and you think the church is Israel, you got problems because you can't understand what's happening. Or if you're kingdom now, if you're a, a post-millennialist, then you can't even understand the Great Commission because you think the Great Commission is to make the kingdom now through the church's efforts. So it is important. I agree, Keith. Yes. You know, I was just thinking, all these people who, want, who think they're Christ now, they're, they don't know it, but they're fulfilling Scripture. Yes, false Christs are fulfilling Scripture. If you want to read an article about that, um, we have we put the URL in the bulletin. Uh, there's now four of us here writing, have written for Worldview Weekend. Brian, Keith, me, and Jan from this little church. Keith has an article in Worldview Weekend called "The God Embracing the God-Given Ministry of False Prophets." <laughs> so you better check him out. Maybe he's a heretic. <laughs> but I, uh, actually, it's it's a very interesting idea. Basically, it's, it's, just, it's just one phrase to describe it. It needs be that offenses come, but woe to him by whom they come. You know. So God has a reason for allowing these false prophets. At the end of the age, they have a role. So, Worldview Weekend has those articles, and I have one on there called "An Apostle or a Fifteen Hundred Dollar Cat." <laughs> so can, so. See, when you do these little articles, you got to figure out. It's like the newspaper; you got to have a, a catchy title. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, so we read the thing about shaking. We were well, we got talking about prophecy, and so now, what do we know now? Let's just get, let me put this all back together. Jesus said. This, today this is fulfilled. What part? The part of the favorable year of the Lord, the day of salvation, the day of, mis- of forgiveness of sins, of lifting out the downtrodden that God brings up out of the muck and mire and puts him in his kingdom and in his family. But what remains is the day of vengeance of our God. But it's just as real. Because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it isn't real. All right, And so therefore, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? It's real. It will come. You have to be right or it's too late. Now, verse 28. We're going to do, well, we're going to at least start a second. Look at that. Can you imagine we might get to two verses on one Sunday? Verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now, I want a, a grammatical notice in the present continual tense in the Greek. So it's, it's saying we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we, we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. So, uh, we, what this means, since we receive a kingdom, we are in the process of receiving it. Alright? And just so you understand, how does the kingdom, how is the kingdom built? The kingdom is being populated during the church age from the day of Pentecost until the end, actually I guess the time of the Gentiles goes on until the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, right? But I don't know whether I'd cut the church age off then because during the Great Tribulation, God is still adding to His church. That, that being true, whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture or any other timing of the rapture, everybody believes that people will be saved during the Tribulation. So, in a sense, the church is still, you know, the kingdom is gaining adherence even through these martyrs in, in, in the tribulation. Now, so the, the way the kingdom grows is not by buying a piece of land. Do you, do you understand that? And, and keep your money in your pocket. If somebody says, send your money in so we can build a kingdom, unless they say, send your money in so that we can preach the gospel so God will add people to the kingdom, that's one thing. That would be worthy. But if they're saying, send the money because I want to buy a parcel of land so that the kingdom can have it, I wouldn't give a penny to that because they have a bad theology. The kingdom doesn't own any land. Or it does own all. <laughs> it's not our all. It's either, yeah, I said that to somebody. Remember we had a debate with a guy that used that terminology, and so we corrected him. Either you're, either you're going to say, there is no such thing as land for the kingdom now, and, and everything's... The whole world lies under the wicked one. Or you're going to say God owns everything, which He does. Alright? It's all the Lord's anyhow, whatever it is. 
no matter who owns, who has the title. But you can't say part of it is God's and part of it's Satan. It's because that's a faulty conception of the kingdom. Because then you try to, that's like the Crusades. We're going to get Jerusalem for the kingdom of God. We're going to take over, uh, like uh, Charlemagne. He, got, he took Saxony for the kingdom of God. He went in and killed all these people and told them they're going to become Christians if they didn't die. They can either die or become Christians. So they decided Christianity wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> yeah, I have the crusade now for your wallet, right? So, so what, what, what does this mean then? It says we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That we have already the earnest of the down payment of the Holy Spirit, and that we're members, okay, of the church, and when. Christ comes and sets up his kingdoms, we'll be citizens. Alright? So what our job is, is to see that there'll be more citizens as one by one people are saved. They're added to the kingdom. Now, uh, so what cannot be shaken is God's unshakable kingdom. And um, this pattern here is, keeps up all the way through Hebrews. I talked about this several times. The pattern in Hebrews is a stern warning and then pastoral encouragement and comfort. So warning, 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 but you've received an unshakable kingdom. So you can serve God with reverence. That's pastoral comfort. Um, uh, uh, anybody who's an elder or pastor needs to be careful to follow this pattern. If, if a pastor only preaches on love and comfort, but no repentance, judgment, then that, that gives you a really bad theology and it, and it causes people to not see the need to really get right with God. It's just, it's like one pastor we had when I was a kid in the, in the liberal church. My mom even said he looks at life through rose-colored glasses. Oh, the good Lord, the good people, the good everything. And everything was this nice, wonderful bowl of cherries. Because there's no God who's going to come in judgment and there's no threat. But on the other hand, if you preach only fire and brimstone of threat in a legalistic way, so that everybody feels continually that God's angry with them and there's no hope, that'll damage the flock. But if you if you if you do both, the the threat of the law and the comfort of the gospel, God will build a flock of people that are strong. Yes, Brian. One way I listened to a series by D.A. Carson, Lois Foster, preaching probably like seven years ago, it really affected me and helped me along. And one of the things he says is each message needs to have the elements. That the message needs to both wound and heal, and needs to both convict and comfort. And those are, I mean, it's a really good thing to have in your mind. With you. Not only if, you, if you're a preacher, to have those things in your mind, but also as a listener, as someone that goes before preaching. Is, is, is Joel Osteen both convicting and comforting? No, just only comforting. <laughs> There's just, you know, and that's, that's just it. And that's the, when you get through the Word of God, especially Hebrews. Yeah. Hebrews is full of this, this uh, formula of wounding and healing. And you see it especially in, in, in 6 and in 10 where the severest ones happen where we have these severe warnings that you're so scared but then he comes back with this comfort that uh, we are not those who shrink back. Right. Exactly. And that's the same pattern here in 12. This Our God is consuming fire but we received an unshakable kingdom. And have, have, did you go into Psalm 110 at all? Because We have a number of times, not today yet. Psalm 110 is really interesting about the kingdom because it speaks of the reality of the present kingdom. Psalm 110 was the most quoted in the New Testament and in the early church. And the, the brilliance that the church saw in, in, in Psalm 110 is that the Lord is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, but His reign is real. Yes. The reign isn't something that's future or, or anything, even though it isn't part future, but it says rule in the midst of your enemies. Yes. And when that's what we see right now is Jesus of Nazareth has a kingdom, has a rule, and he's ruling in the midst of his enemies until, as it reads, he makes his enemies. That's the day of vengeance. Yeah. I just quoted, by the way, before you got here, from Luke 4, and we showed how Jesus just quoted part of Isaiah yeah. and left the day of vengeance out, but then that's because that's future. Yeah, so so now Jesus is reigning from the right hand. Now he's ruling, but he's going to come and literally destroy his enemies and set up the righteous kingdom on the earth. Okay. Um, <laughs> Linda, Daniel 7.14. Stephan, Daniel 7.27. Keith, Matthew 25.34. Karen, Romans 12.1 and 2. 
Larry, 1 Peter 2, 5, and Dave, Revelation 5 and verse 10. Not to let anybody be left out, but the reason I do the front row is because it gets on here better and it makes my job easier when I put it on the internet. Because I gotta blow up the sound for the, so people can hear. By the way, just to be, I should have brought that one. I was gonna bring it and read it to, remember I forwarded Dick and Keith that email from somebody that's listening to our Sunday school? Yeah, it was really, I got a wonderful email from somebody that lives in a town where there's no gospel church. And uh, she said that just listening to the Sunday schools makes her feel a part of it. Because she hears the interaction and the questions back and forth. So that's why we we do this is because we want there's some people that this is a lifeline to them. Amen. Because they just don't have a, a church in, in sometimes even fairly sizable towns. Okay, Daniel 7.14. You're blocking my light. <laughs> blocking your light? <laughs> I, I keep telling you, you need new glasses, Linda. <laughs> here. From another middle-aged lady over here. <laughs> My wife. Then, to them is given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Great. It worked. You, you, Diane, you have to show her how to get one of these. $3 at Northwestern Bookstore. <laughs> For everybody over, well, we won't say how old we are. <laughs> that was close. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble yet. Let's go on to Stephen here. Daniel 727. <laughs> That's the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heavens, will be given to the people of the saints, of the highest one. His kingdom will be everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve him and obey him. All of the dominions will serve him and obey him. So both of those passages are talking about an everlasting, unshakable kingdom and that Messiah is going to set up and rule over, and it will have people... See, where earlier, remember we talked about the fact that the, the God was going to save Gentiles? So those passages would say that all of these different dominions are going to be part of that kingdom, that they're going to be subservient. Now, uh, what we know the case is they're either going to be, the, the, the kingdoms of the world will be destroyed, but people from those who have believed the gospel will be part of this new kingdom. Men and women from all around, every tribe and nation. Yep. Okay. And then the next one, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen. Amen. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah, good. That's a good translation of that, by the way. Um, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's 1 Peter 2.5. You are being built in as stones into his house. Okay, and then Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So we're, we're a kingdom of priests to God. Revelation 5 and verse 10. I have here... Um, let me give you a little bit of a technical background of how this is put together. What Lane says is going on here is that... There's an allusion to Psalm 96, 9 through 11 that's being used <clears throat> to interpret Psalm 2-6. I mean, Haggai 2-6, plus allusions to Psalm 93-1 and Psalm 46, 5 and 6. And this, what he, what he calls this is paranetic midrash. Paranetic midrash. Now, paranetic means having the character of being an exhortation. And midrash was the way the Jewish people used the scriptures. Okay, And so what they would do is often pull, rather than just cite one verse, they would pull 
phrases and words and ideas from a lot of different verses and then use that to preach. And, and as they would be in the synagogues or wherever they were doing this, the passages would come to the minds of people. All right. So rather than just citing any one of these, there's little phrases out of the Septuagint version of four or five different psalms, and he's using it to interpret Haggai 2.6 in a very Jewish fashion. So that's what Lane said about this. Let's see, I have a citation here. 485. Let's see here. The focus of Haggai's prophetic ministry was the same event. It was the co-relation established in his Bible, which clarifies why the writer would have brought together in his mind the detail of Psalm 95 Septuagint, which is our Psalm 96, when he was, in fact, interpreting the prophecy of Haggai 2.6 Septuagint. An important principle in Jewish hermeneutics was that two passages which concern the same event or contain the same phrase are mutually interpretive. What the writer recalled in Psalm 95, 10, 9 through 10 Septuagint, was a call to worship. And then he has a, he, he actually makes his own translation from the Septuagint. Worship the Lord in his holy court. Let all the earth be shaken before him. So the grammatical link was the term shaking. Haggai says that once more he'll shake the heavens and the earth. Psalm 95 Septuagint has the same word in it, so that's how they pull that together. Let all the earth be shaken before him. Say to the nations, the Lord has inaugurated his reign, for he will complete the heavenly world, which will not be shaken. That's the Septuagint. So that's right where this phrase, the heavenly um, unshakable kingdom, comes out of that. So that's how that... i just amazed at people that know this much stuff. Because you know, basically, to be able to know that, you'd have to have the whole Septuagint in your mind from the Greek and all the intertestamental Jewish literature plus the New Testament. So it's amazing there's people with that much understanding of the Bible. Um, here, i got about a minute. Let me quote this. One other detail, this is Lane, is significant. Although Van Hoy has no interest in the introductory statement in Psalm 95.9, Septuagint, worship the Lord in his holy court, it does not quote that in his article is precisely this command that explains why the writer appeals for the grateful worship of God with fear and awe as the appropriate response to the reception of an unshakable kingdom. Fear and awe are appropriate in the holy court of the sovereign Lord. All right, So we're coming into God's holy court. We're receiving an unshakable kingdom. Our God is a consuming fire. So let us worship the Lord in awe and fear before Him. So... Um, wow, that was two pretty nice verses. And we got one left. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, and then we'll, we'll move into, we'll start Hebrews 13. Wow. We technically have five minutes left. Why? We started at five minutes. Oh, <laughs> we started late, huh? Um, so then we'll do Hebrews 13. And when we get done with that, uh, we'll have to decide where we should go next in our study of the Scriptures. Uh, So God bless you, and we'll see you upstairs in a half hour.